Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. According to the Insurance Bureau of Canada, more than 80,000 vehicles have been stolen in this country over the past year. In Ontario, thefts are up 329, or we're up 329% in the first half of 2023. It's, it's a number that, the, the numbers are crazy. Just how many cars are being stolen? Well, this has impact on you as you consider the number of cars that are being stolen you realize that your every one of us has insurance on our car and the more insurers have to pay out to pay people for cars that are suddenly missing the higher your premiums go all of us I want to bring in Elliot Silverstein he is the director of government relations with CAA insurance joins us now Elliot thanks for this today thanks for having me the uh, this is such a huge problem and yet I don't know that many people think of it in terms of it affecting them unless it's their car that is missing and there's just a pile of glass on the driveway. I don't think people realize they're paying for this. You know, it, it certainly is a challenge and one that we're looking at as a potential down the road. So right now, there's been many steps to try and, and address the issues with, with those that have been directly affected. You know, a lot of insurers have also added surcharges um, if, if high-risk drivers are not installing different types of vehicle deterrent, uh, theft deterrents, I should say. But the challenge is that if, if it continues to go at the rate that it's moving, the fear is for us is that we're going to see people having to pay more for insurance because unlike a lot of claims, you know, when you see collisions and so forth, the vehicles are, are, are written off at, at, a diff- at different levels based on how long you've had them. In so many cases with vehicle theft, these cars are just a couple of months old, maybe a year or so old, and, and the depreciated value, you know, is, 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 is one that you're, you're basically paying out almost for a brand new car. If you are in an accident and it's not your fault, uh, there is no fault on that. I mean, you can get, what if your car is stolen? Are you always considered at fault if your car is stolen or how does that work as far as how the insurers then see you as a risk? So, you know, certainly, I mean, every insurance company is different in how they approach it. And, and, you know, these types of situations, what they're trying to do is trying to, at least from our perspective, try to encourage people to take different steps. These things are not necessarily people's faults. However, if it happens repeatedly, and there are examples where people have had two or three cars stolen, then it becomes a bit of a different conversation because it's a repeated incident. But for a lot of people, if they have that traumatic experience where they have a, a car stolen, they're going to make different changes. They're going to you know, install different type of ignition blocks or they're going to keep their car in a garage. And, and those types of deterrents are going to be out there because we don't hear very many of repeat situations, but they do happen. And that's where you want to be concerned. I, I would assume there are neighborhoods that are more repeat, the, the neighborhoods that pop up in the insurance claims than other ones. There are bad neighborhoods for car thefts, I'm assuming. You know, there are, com- there are communities that ha- have vehicles that are, that are under watch more than others. I think that these are sophisticated groups that are staking out to see what types of vehicles, whether it be SUVs or pickup trucks, are available and, and, and identifying where to go. But the thing is, is that this is a widespread issue. This is happening all across the province and, and quite honestly, all across the country. And we're seeing it getting worse. And, and that's why we're trying to educate drivers right now, because there's things that we can do immediately in terms of changing habits. Um, to try and thwart some of the, these um, these thieves because they're getting away with our vehicles in under a couple of minutes. Why is it getting worse? You know, it's, it's getting worse because 
the the challenge is that we have vehicle standards in Canada that have not been updated since 2007. So if you think back to where we were 17 years ago, we didn't have smartphones, we didn't have tablets, and now those devices are being used in many of these heists because they're getting access to our cars through these types of technology using the push-button starts and off they go. So, you know, really, unless we start addressing some of those issues and what we want to see coming out of the summit next week is is really looking at trying to fill those those gaps and, and address the vehicle standards issues, work on border services to make sure that it's harder to get vehicles out of the country. Until we address those issues and see some significant change, the risk is out there for all of us. Let's go back to a second there when you talk about apps and smartphones and stuff, because I, maybe I'm underestimating people, but I don't think a lot of people, and and I only learned about it recently, honestly, so I'm, I'm speaking from someone who was in this boat. I don't think a lot of people realize how is the word easy, but with technology, how easy it can be to steal a car now and how to get into a car. It really is easy. And that, and that's part of the challenge is that we have in, in almost in some ways traded off the convenience of things like push button starts and remote entries as, as, and you know, it's affecting the security and the safety of our vehicles because the, these thieves are using technology to get access to the car. In some cases, they don't even need to have the key fob with them. A lot of them will try to, to replicate the radio frequencies, which is why we talk about using Faraday pouches to try and block the signals. But again, you know, we have all these different tools in our cars, but the standards have not been updated. And, and because it's that risk, I mean, you may not even realize that it's gone for hours and hours because they've done it so quietly and so quickly. But I, we have now on my phone, I just, I couldn't even remember because, you know, you do it so casually and repeatedly. I was trying to remember how I log into my phone right now. And it's either the old iPhone I had was with my thumbprint. The new one is facial recognition. If I can do that on my iPhone, why do all of our cars not have that? Because it would seem that that would in large measure solve the problem. If your thumbprint isn't pressed onto the the pad, the car doesn't start. Does that not solve it? Is that not an easy thing? We, we've talked about immobilizers as one of the solutions in many ways. And I think having the ability to have those in the car, you know, if some people choose not to have them, you know, in, in, initiated, that's up to them. But realistically, a car is somebody's second largest possession outside of their home. Right. To not have that type of two-factor authentication that you're talking about is a bit of a miss. Because, again, we think about everything in our lifestyle, redeeming affinity points, redeeming, uh, you know, food vouchers, pizzas, and so forth. Those all have two-factor authentication. Your car doesn't have it as a standard. And certainly, you know, we think about it when you're paying 40, 50, even thousand, you know, sixty thousand dollars more. Those are expensive costs, and we want to have our cars protected. We want to wake up knowing that our car is safe and still there. Let me be really cynical as we wrap up here. Let me be really cynical. Car manufacturers don't want to do that because they want cars to be stolen. Because if the car is stolen, then more cars get made and purchased. I don't know that I would say that that they want it to happen. I think that the challenge is is that we're not necessarily or to date been aligned where the federal government has made the changes and mandated that manufacturers have to do certain things. I think that everybody's at the table talking about the fact we have a problem. What we need now is we need everybody to come together with that open mind for that common solution because we need everybody from government to law enforcement to manufacturers to insurers, everybody working together with that common goal and realize we all play a part in it because if somebody doesn't, we're not going to get there as soon as we should. That is Elliot Silverstein. He is the Director of Government Relations with CAA Insurance. Elliot, thank you for taking time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm 
very surprised in one sense by what we're going to talk about next. Part of this is a little bit predictable, but the a, a new survey is out saying that half of Canadians, 55 and under, are concerned that they could lose their job because of the economy. And I'm a little surprised by it, and I'll tell you why I'm surprised. Not that people are not concerned about the economy, but because we have heard for weeks and months and probably years now that businesses in this country are struggling to fill jobs. So it seems kind of odd that we've heard so much about the fact that it's, that everybody is looking to hire, it seems. And yet at the same time, many expect that their job is going to disappear. Let me bring in John Rowe. He's a research associate with Angus Reed, who is behind this poll. Joins us now. John, how are you? Good. How are you, Scott? I am terrific. Thanks for doing this. As I say, it's a it's a weird survey. We're res- not a weird survey. Weird results only because of that. That it seems like everyone is kind of pessimistic that their job is going to go, even though there's lots of jobs out there. Yeah, and it's been somewhat of a consistent, uh, like maybe not at this high level, but Canadians even over the last two years, where there has been some of these like record low kind of job or record high job vacancies, record low unemployment, uh, lots of jobs available, like companies struggling to hire workers. There's still about two and five, one third Canadians even two well, last couple of years that said, I'm really worried that me or somebody in my household could lose a job because of this economy. So I think that fear is somewhat persistent. But I think what's notable about these numbers is that it's it's ticked up in the last in the last time we've taken this data uh, as well. It's it's pretty consistent across the board for people under the age of 55. So it's about half of them now that believe that they they or someone in their household could lose a job because of the economy. Because, yeah, and and when I look at the age breakdown here, you've got an 18 to 34, 35 to 54, 55 plus. I would have guessed at this kind of number from younger workers who are just trying to get in, don't have the experience, don't have the seniority. I would have thought they would be more concerned. They're actually a little bit less concerned than the 35 to 54 group. Yeah, it, it is like, but it's very slight. Like I would say it's probably within very the close. statistical margin of error. So in, in our world, that kind of is basically the same number in a lot of ways. Uh, but I think what, what you're kind of seeing is that there are a lot of Canadians out there who are probably in kind of maybe or are just kind of worried. I think that what they're doing, or maybe it's part-time work, maybe it's uh, jobs in kind of the service industry and those kind of jobs, which which make up a lot of the jobs out there, uh, that those are the kind of the jobs that I think they're kind of at the, the first end of like what could possibly be like an economic downturn. Uh, though we've seen somewhat better economic numbers than I think the Bank of Canada expected in November and December, I think there is still somewhat that fear out there that this economy at some point is going to take a turn for the worse. Well, John, how long now, how many months, years have we been hearing the recession is looming. The recession is looming and it hasn't really hit us yet, but I think, I wonder if that's just been burned into people's brains. It's coming. So something bad is going to come. It's going to happen. Yeah. And I think that's, it, it has kind of been part of the narrative of this kind of high inflationary period was that there's this expectation that this period of high inflation would follow or would be followed by a recession. And there's lots of economists that were predicting recessions in 2023, which never really materialized. Yep. And I think there's it's a similar number that are saying the same thing about this year. Uh, so I think that has to play a factor that Canadians are kind of looking at these economic data and they're seeing these kind of negative sentiments out there and thinking, okay, well, if, if that comes, then I, I'm worried that I could be on the chopping block. And you've asked more than this in this survey because there's some other things in here that is concerning for sure. Uh, One of them is, all right, if something did happen to your job, 
how much financial flexibility do you have? And almost a third say they could not handle an unexpected expense of $250 or less. That That is saying just how tight some people are living. Yeah, and it, it is a number that uh, it's somewhat consistent, I think, from what we've seen kind of prior to the pandemic. About two years ago, when we asked this question, which was in February 2022, it was half of Canadians said they could manage anything over $1,000. And I, I think that's partially attributed to what people have said, that there was a, like a huge buildup of savings during the pandemic when people couldn't right. go out and spend money. Uh, and now it's kind of trended downwards back again. So it's about a majority of Canadians say they can't handle anything uh, over $1,000. Yeah, I don't know that we learned what maybe we were supposed to during the pandemic, which was, hey, you know what? Saving some money actually gives you some peace of mind. We've kind of seemingly got away from that a bit, a lot of people, according to this survey, because again, many, many people, there is almost no flexibility there if something bad were to happen. And and it's not just, I mean, it's young people, but it's it's every age group, it seems, too. Yeah, and I think part of it too, though, is that obviously the the last few months or last few years have been so high inflation and rent and shelter costs and mortgage payments have gone up. So maybe it is partially okay. Well, we didn't learn the lessons of the pandemic, but also that life has become so expensive, it is becoming a lot harder to save money in a lot of ways. Uh, and you're right, it is across age groups. Uh, older Canadians are much better positioned, as you might expect from people who've established, probably own their own home, have had a bit more time to save money. But uh, it's it's younger Canadians, uh, and I think especially women, kind of more so than men, are kind of a lot closer to kind of the edge, I guess, if, with an unexpected expense that could possibly come. Okay, that said, and this one really, you're going to have to explain this because this really surprised me. So you, you were asking then as you follow that up with about savings, and your point is very well taken that life is way more, much more expensive now. It becomes harder to save. So I 100% get that. But you said who, who contributes nothing to their TFSA or RSP in a typical year, and the group that contributes nothing the highest percentage group that contributes nothing is 45 to 54 year olds who I would have thought, John, would be the ones who are suddenly scrambling to contribute anything to try and build it up because maybe they fell behind. They're the least likely. Yeah. And part of it though, too, would probably be potentially people who have maybe been withdrawing from their savings and their RSP in recent years, maybe to pay down some debts. But you, you would think that, yeah, you're getting close to the end of your working career, that you're probably looking at retirement coming at you maybe 10 years, 15 years down the line, uh, that you would be, okay, well, now's the time to start saving a lot more. But I think maybe that does kind of speak to just how difficult things have been recently, where even people that should be in a position maybe more to be saving their, later in their career. So you would think that they would have higher incomes, maybe be further along on their, on the career ladder, but they're saying to us, yeah, that three and five, 45 to 50 year olds say they're not contributing to a TFSA in a given year. And 44% say they're not contributing to an RRSP. Yeah. Meanwhile, the flip side, which I think is actually really encouraging is 60% basically of those 18 to 34 are contributing to TFSA or RRSP. And again, not necessarily what, what I would expect because that would be the group who is probably looking to buy a house or get something, probably just starting their career, maybe has student debt still to pay. I mean, good for them, but 60% of them saying they are contributing, that's encouraging. Yeah, it is good. Uh, uh, there is about 10% of that group that says, uh, I, I prefer not to say, so not choosing okay. not to disclose the financial information to us, but that still does leave half of them that say that they're contributing uh, 
yeah, typically in a given year. Uh, but it, it does kind of range. So it's only about one in 10 that say they're contributing the maximum amount. And then uh, about 10% say it's about more than half, but a little bit less than that. So the majority of the, or the majority of that group is 24% who say uh, that they're contributing less than half, but they're still contributing. But that is encouraging because it, the earlier you start on it, the, the better it is for you, obviously, into retirement. All of this, and I'm glad you asked this question, all of this comes with political ramifications as well, because you asked the question based on who you're likely to vote for. And it's really interesting to me because it kind of aligns with what the parties are federally are pitching right now. The liberals are saying, you know, things are not that bad. The country's not broken. We're helping you. They are agreeing they're less stressed about the whole job thing. The people likely to vote conservative far more stressed about their job. It really does align very clearly with those political parties and their positions. Yeah, and uh, this this poll kind of or this report follows an earlier report from the same sort of data set that we did. Uh, we didn't split the data this way for this most recent one, but in the previous one, we we split people by uh, if you're voting liberal in 2021 and you're still voting liberal now, and people who voted liberal in 2021 but now have switched parties or are saying they're not going to vote and those kind of things. And we found that a lot of the people that are now leaving the Liberal Party, looking to place their vote elsewhere, are much more concerned about these kind of financial matters. They're more likely to say that they can't keep up with the cost of living, that they believe it's a bad time to make a major purchase. Uh, they're worried about their month being able to meet their rent or their mortgage payment in the next six months. So we do see that people who are maybe struggling a bit more economically looking and saying, OK, well, this governing Liberal Party has not done as much for me as I, I would have hoped, even though I voted for them in 2021. And now I'm looking elsewhere to place my vote. You know, the next time you do this one, I only have one question that I would hope you would ask as well. And maybe you did, and it just wasn't included in the report that I saw. Uh, people concerned about losing their job, private sector, public sector. I would think that the number of public sector people who would answer yes would be about 0%. Yeah, and that's a, we do sometimes ask those questions where it's like, okay, do you work in the private sector or the public sector? We didn't do it this time. Uh, sometimes we don't want to like stack too many questions on these kind of things just to uh, get people kind of through the survey. But it is an interesting one for sure because I think that's that's one of the complaints I think that people have had about this uh, liberal government is that the jobs they've created over their their course of their time have been a lot more public sector jobs than private sector ones. And I think yeah, those public sector employees probably feel a bit safer though. There has been some layoffs in the in the federal government as well. In, in recent months. John Rowe, our research associate with Angus Reid. Always love having you on, John. Thanks for doing this today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, my next guest was on the show a little while ago because he was talking, he's part of the Hamilton, the uh, Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame event week induction. I'm trying to find the word there. It popped out eventually. My brain eventually loosened up and found the word induction. The Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame induction event that is happening here in town. He'll be part of that because he is a stand-up comedian and he, uh, that is his world. But interestingly, his family also is from the well, do we call it show business? I don't know what, I don't know if it's, it, the entertainment, we'll let him explain how he would describe it, but he, he's got a new book out called Run With The Bull. His name is Eric Johnson, joins us now. Eric, how are you today? Scott Riley, good to be back. Always good to have you on, love having you on. I'm looking forward to seeing you when the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame is here. But this one, I did not know 
about your family's background and they are so you're you're a comedian you're a speaker your father your grandfather both professional wrestlers unbelievable i had no idea are they so would they have said they were in show business or entertainment or were they in athletics? Yeah, sports and entertainment show business uh wrestling whatever you want to call it back in the day you know my my grandfather came from out of you know the carnival days of professional wrestling when it was shoot wrestling out of the you know 50s 60s and 70s my dad started in the late 70s 80s and 90s um and wrestled into you know almost the year 2000 um and yeah the book is called run with the bull three generations of sports and entertainment uh i profile my entire family history coming out of hamilton coming out of the east end of hamilton uh and you know putting the city on their backs and touring the world and now i'm doing the same thing but in a slightly different world. <laughs> I don't get as many bumps. I don't know if how many people would know your grandfather, honestly, but I think a bunch of people might know of your father. Your father was who? My father was Bullwhip Danny Johnson out of Hamilton, Ontario. Not only was he a wrestler out of Hamilton, he ran a bunch of uh, wrestling shows in Hamilton in the East End of Hamilton. He used to run shows at the Kiwanis Club in the East End of Hamilton, and and he actually gave Edge and Christian and Val Venus, who all went on to be WWE superstars, their first match ever in Hamilton, and it was at the Kiwanis Club wow. at an event that my dad was running. And my grandfather, actually, he, he was the original Bull. He was Bull Johnson. He used to run the wrestling shows out of the Shamrock Club on James Street for your older listeners and also he used to run and book and set up the matches for CHCH wrestling uh, so there's a huge Hamilton history with professional wrestling oh sure there is sure there is yeah. I, by the way I have not heard the name Val Venus in years so that's uh... <laughs> I thought you were going to say ever I was going to say oh no 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 I, rem- I remember Val Venus with the towel and the whole thing oh, yeah, no, yeah. No, I, lady I, yeah. Yeah, she I do. Uh, so Casanova. Once upon a time, and I, I, you know, this is uh, with you. I could say this. I don't know if I would share this with everybody else. There was a time when you know I was I I, I would watch. I mean, it's been a long time, but we used to play a game. A buddy and I, we used to play a game where you would have three seconds and you just keep going back and forth. You had to name a wrestler and you couldn't repeat it and see how long we could actually go. Oh, wow. That's a great game. That's basically what I did with this book. (laughs) And it's it's amazing. What happened was I'm I'm working with legendary sports author. I'm sure you're familiar with his name is Greg Oliver. I know Greg. Yep. Yeah. And Greg is the, he started slam wrestling back in the nineties and he's written 20 books. Actually run with the bull is his 20th book. Uh, he approached me and I had some projects in the work, a documentary series, a comedy series. And he said, no, 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 there's a book here. You know, so he went back to all the old wrestling archives and newspaper articles and magazine articles and, and just the history of professional wrestling, especially coming out of Hamilton. And uh, he handled the who, what, where, when, why, how it happened, what their name was, who won, who lost, who was there, what city he was in. And uh, then I go in with the second half of every chapter and I write my experience with it, what it was like to grow up in the circus and and deal with a father and a grandfather you know my grandfather passed away before i was even born i i, I say i was i was formally introduced to my own grandfather while writing this book with greg all wow. and and he had an assistant named joe uh, K- uh Kisharo, and uh, they went in and did all the research interviews all my dad's friends interviewed all my friends my family my uncle randy who recently passed away uh he did a whole inter because my uncle randy was my dad's tag partner in the 80s uh so they traveled around together as the sharp brothers as an homage come on Sharp family. Really? Iron Mike yeah. Sharp, Canada's greatest athlete. That's right. Don't forget it. I still uh, have the yeah, t-shirt they were the at Sharp home. Brothers. 
Uh, yep. This is before Iron Mike even got into wrestling himself. And then when Iron Mike got into wrestling, he went, "Hey, I'm going to need that sharp name back." So they went off, and and uh, my grand or my my uncle Randy was Little Boy Blue for a bit. And then my dad went off to be Bullwhip Johnson, Battleship Johnson, the Bull, Danny Bull Johnson, and many many more names. One of my regrets uh, writing for the Spectator is for a number of years. I tried to find and do a story and do something on Iron Mike Sharp, and he was incredibly elusive, and I learned oh, later yeah. why that was. He was in, later in his life, he was going through some struggles, and there were some tough times, and he just, I don't think, was wanting necessarily to be found or to be previewed or profiled or anything like that. But that was that was one, because he, for a time there, I mean, it was a shtick and it was hilarious as, you know, Canada's greatest athlete, and he clearly was an over-the-top, not Canada's greatest athlete, but, <laughs> but it was such a memorable character out of Hamilton. It was a good gimmick, I'll tell you that. There was a lot of wrestlers that came out of Hamilton. They oh, used yeah. to call Hamilton the Meat Factory. And uh, all those guys, Dewey Robertson, the Missing Link, and Ernie the Executioner, Moore, and Billy Red Lions, and all those guys, the Love Brothers, mm. uh, they were all at Hamilton. They all worked for National Steel Cars, Stelco, DeFasco. They all drove truck for Fluke Transport. Uh, they were they were working guys, and then on the weekends, they would wrestle in Timmins and Sault Ste. Marie and the Carolinas and Pittsburgh, and they just the list goes on so Dewey Robertson um so Dewey Robertson later again in his life and for people who don't know he was the missing link that was his uh, missing link that's that right. was his shtick and he was uh he had his green face with black rings of all painted on with green with black around his eyes and so later in his life I got to know Dewey a little bit and w- I was doing a story on him for the spectator he walks and we said we need a picture of you so he comes to the spectator building to the studio for a photo And when he walks in, he's wearing a suit and looks like a distinguished gentleman carrying (laughs) a bag. And so we we said, okay, here's the studio. What do you need? He goes, well, I need five minutes to get myself into wrestling stuff. And so he disappears. And all of a sudden we hear a blood curdling scream. The (laughs) secretary in the newsroom didn't know what was going on. And he had got taken off his suit, was wearing his trunks, had now painted his face green and he glued on hair onto his bald head. And he came around the corner and she didn't know that this was happening and almost ran into him and you would have thought there was a dead body in the room. It was great. <laughs> well, there could have been if the missing link was around long enough, but uh, you know, it's crazy. I grew up with these characters around my house and I, I cover that a lot in the book. You know, I had the bushwhacker swimming in my Ooh. pool and I have pictures with Macho Man Randy Savage and, and the big show and those were just my dad's friends, Randy, Paul, and then the bushwhackers. You know, I have these weird Australian guys in my pool <laughs> as a back, in, as a, in the backyard as a kid. But one of my dad's best friends was Johnny Canine. Now, if oh. you're from Hamilton, yeah. you know the name Johnny Keenan. Not only was he a, a, a all-star professional wrestler, also a career criminal. Yes, uh, I write I write in the book about being around Johnny Keenan growing up, and then seeing him on the front page of the Spectator getting arrested in front of the Donut Diner on Stone Church, and what that experience was like as a kid. So it's all it's all in there. My whole life story. It's it's both hilarious and absolutely heartbreaking. And and to talk talk about you know the demons and stuff we're talking about with with Iron Mike Sharp and all those older guys. You know, both my grandfather and father passed away from alcohol. And, and and struggle with mental health and addiction. And I talk about that openly in the book. You know, I'm here to give this story to the world. And maybe there's a kid just like me, you know what I mean? Or there's someone who's struggling themselves and that's why they're reading. It's not just a comedy book. It's not just a wrestling book. It's a book about life and all the characters in it. So this, again. Yeah, no, Eric, this, the thing about professional wrestling, and again, I mean, a lot of people hear this and 
they might scoff at it because oh, it's just professional wrestling. And I get that. I mean, I get that it's not everyone's cup of tea. I completely understand that. But it's not, for those who are in it, even today when you hear, and way back especially, it is not an easy life. It is really not an easy life. It's life on the road, and I'm experiencing myself as a, as a stand-up comic. I'm about to go on a 75-city tour. I just bought a new house with my wife, and i got to pay the mortgage, so I'm going back out on the road, <laughs> and I'm going to be gone for three months, and I have a show every single night. I'm going from Cape Breton to Victoria by car by myself. You know, I, I have back pain. I'm 33 years old, and I've got back pain like I'm a professional wrestler. It's from being in the car all the time and lugging my own merchandise and lugging my own PA system and lugging my own stage and stool and stand and microphone, you know, this is this is my life. I'm I've joined the circus. I'm just not a wrestler. I'm a, I'm a stand-up comic and an actor and now an author. So here we go. What did you learn? And there's so many ways we could talk about this in this book and everything else. But w- w- from seeing your dad in this world and having those guys around, what did you know or what did you see about professional wrestling about the game? Did, like, were, would they have talked about it being? Uh, again, we started by saying show business as opposed to yeah. a sport. Would they have said, oh yeah, no, it's, it's, we know who's going to win and all that kind of stuff. Or would, or was it not that kind of discussion with them? Was it much more serious? Well, for me, you know, my grandfather died in 88 and I was born in 90. So I, I, I was formally introduced to my grandfather while writing this book. And, and, you know, up to the day he died, he told people it was real. This is real. They, they traveled in separate cars. They stayed in separate hotels. They were in different dressing rooms. You know, my dad's era in the 80s and 90s, things started to loosen up a bit. My dad was still very old school. He protected the businesses called kayfabe. He kept kayfabe everywhere he went. He kept a bullwhip in his truck in case anyone recognized him out on the street and thought really? he was bullwhip John. And he had a bullwhip in his car. You know what I mean? But, you know, I saw these guys wrestling like Angelo Mosca Jr. and all the missing link and stuff. And they'd be enemies in the ring. And then they'd be drinking beer and swimming in my pool in the backyard the next day. So you 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 clue in pretty quick that these guys are also just friends, you know, and it's all part of the business, you know. But these guys were my protectors. You know, it was very real. The cuts and the bruises and the pain and the mental pain and the addiction. That's what's real about professional wrestling. Yeah, the, the matches are set up to who's going to win, who's going to lose but you know it's it's still a very very tough sport and it's highly respected it's still one of the most profitable things to this day if you look at the news and tko and the millions of dollars going into the wwe and now out of the wwe but you know it's 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 a business like any other business and you respect them if you treat it like a business it will treat you like a business and you'll make some money so how did you not end up in it after two generations you come along how did you not end up going into wrestling well, there's still a chance, my friend, Scott. There's a, there's a very good chance. Uh, well, okay. I'm working on a docu-series right now called Becoming Bullwhip. And the idea of the docu-series is me as a 33-year-old successful stand-up comic on the host committee for the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame and doing sold-out shows across Canada. Maybe it's time I lace up the boots and become a professional wrestler myself and go through the training and work out the match and do a big match in Hamilton and referee Harry D is going to ref the match and everything. I'm still working on it. But to answer your question, you know, I saw what it did to my to my dad. And, you know, I said I wrote in the book, you know, it was my job when my dad got home from the road. I would rub a five, three, five on his back and uh, deep cool on his back. I said I was like a cabana boy for most of the 1990s, but my hands were numb. So you know, I was this was the harsh reality of what it did. And I was scared. If you want to be honest, I'm scared. I'm still scared of what could potentially happen to me in a wrestling ring. It's not any different than what happens to me on the stand up comedy stage. It's just a little bit more physically risky. Um, but 
but you know, there's still a chance, but my heart and my soul is in stand-up comedy and performance and acting and stuff. I take the show on the road. I just don't jump off the top rope. Hey, when, when you see, and again, I mean, when I said not an easy life and you were bang on that it's on the road, that's a lot of it, but also, you know, yeah, the, the results can be fixed or set up or whatever word you want to use. Yeah. But when you do jump off the top rope and land wrong or in, like it, it hurts. I mean, I, I have no doubt that what these guys go through, it is physically demanding and painful and leads to injuries. And you see these guys at the end of their career and they are, they are battered. Yeah, my dad would have been 70 years old on January 7th if he survived. And, and you know, I, I can't picture my dad as an old man. He At 45, he was moving around like a 70-year-old then. You know, he had broken every bone in his body. He had broken his ankle in wrestling in Japan. And, and uh, you know, he was beat up. And it's not, it's not, there's not a long life for a professional wrestler. A lot takes professional wrestlers out of the game. But their, their minds want to go, but their bodies give up on them. That's why you see a lot of professional wrestlers on these storytelling tours, because they still want to go out and work but they don't they don't their body won't allow it like i've worked with mick foley mick foley moves like an old man mm. and he's you know in his 50s you know I, i've i've seen it i've lived it i i know it i know this world and it's not a great world but i'm here to talk about all that in the book and and that's that's what's most exciting about it is a little peek behind the curtain in both wrestling and stand-up comedy so that's that's where I'm at. Uh, as I say, there's so many more things we could have talked about, and I wish we had time. It's called Run With the Bolts by Eric Johnston. You can uh, find it where fine books are sold. That's what they say, yep. right? That's, uh, that, that's the <laughs> well, way. Well, I'll, I'll tell you quickly. I know we're running out of time, but there, the book is available on Amazon, and I, the book has been on sale for 16 hours, and it's already an Amazon bestseller. Bestsell, number one bestseller in comedy, number one bestseller in sports and entertainment, number one spell, seller in comedy and humor and sports sports and it's number one uh, hot new release on Amazon so go to Amazon Eric Johnston run with the bull three generations of sports and entertainment I can't wait for you to read it uh, I can't wait to either and uh, listen really appreciate Eric really really appreciate you coming on and talking about all this thanks for doing this thanks for having me yeah you will see Eric again at the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame induction week he will be part of that and you know one of the other names that he mentioned was Billy Red Lion and uh, many of you will remember Billy Red Lion because during Maple Leaf wrestling of the 80s, late 70s, 80s, he was uh, the guy at the end is, you know, don't you dare miss it. Remember, remember him? Uh, he was a Hamilton guy, lived in Dundas till the end of his life. And one of the most lovely human beings, although a man that could tear you from limb to limb, even as an old man, he had paws for hands. He had had every kind of health thing possible. Uh, William Snip was his real name. But uh, yeah, Billy Red Lion is just a lovely, lovely gentleman that, uh, again, from this area and so many, so many wrestlers of time past came from around here and, uh, and made it big. Anyways, it's, I look forward to reading this book because it, it looks like a lot of fun. And again, this is, this is, this has been a real hotbed for producing wrestlers. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Is anyone excited about All-Star Weekend? I don't know. Let me bring in Mike Stubbs. He is the host of London Live on Nye, our sister station, 980 CFPL. He is also the London Knights play-by-play announcer. If anybody is going to be excited about an NHL All-Star game, surely it's the guy who called Mitch Marner back in the day when Mitch was playing in London and is now in the All-Star game, right? Mike, that, you, this has got to be a moment for you. 
Sure, it can be. As long as we're taking this for what it is. That's the problem. You start putting all-star on names, it's it's a hard act to live up to. That's a high bar. And it seems that the last few years have all been about, oh, well, you know, this could be better. And it is an all-star event. And we have to realize who this is really for, Scott. It is certainly to honor players, but this is about sponsorships. This is about people who want attachments to players. This is about players who want attachments to sponsors. This isn't very much about pucks, sticks, and ice. Uh, no, that's that is clearly the case. And I, I, I was, you know, I was remembering back. I don't know how many years ago now in the eighties when Gretzky and Lemieux were playing and Howard Chuck and those guys. And it seemed like they, maybe I'm just you know remembering it as a much younger man, but it seemed like they cared about it. And I don't get the sense that the players give two rips who wins now. I mean, I just, I just, it, whether it's because they make so much money and, or because whatever. It's hard to make a game matter to people when it doesn't seem to matter to the players. They all stand to make more money this weekend, but no, you're not remembering that wrong. Scott, that game that Wayne Gretzky scored goals in, I think it was, what was it, 1984 when he went head-to-head with Mario Lemieux, that was big, and that was all out. But I think we look at it now, and could you imagine seeing a player, take Mitch Marner, for example, how would Leaf fans feel if Mitch Marner went out there in a five-on-five game that saw blocked shots and hits, and all of a sudden he, well, Mitch doesn't get hit a lot. He's good at getting out of the way. But let's say somebody just caught him, and all of a sudden he's got a separated shoulder. And then the Leafs resume next week, and he's not in the lineup. Everyone would hate that. So this has now become what it should be. Look at the National Football League. The Pro Bowl has been terrible always. There has never been a time when two guys could reminisce on the radio about Mario Lemieux and Wayne Gretzky going head-to-head and who scored how many goals and Dale Howarchuk being involved. That's never happened in the Pro Bowl. It's always been terrible because you can't take a playbook and say, guys, I know you're on vacation. I know you're here in Hawaii, but here, go study for 16 hours so that we can put it on the show for the fans. (laughs) That's not going to happen. And so what has the NFL done? They've made it about skills. They've just thrown the entire game out the window. In a way, the National Hockey League has done that. There will still be games starting at 3 o'clock that are all-star games, division against division, three-on-three. So you've got a little of that, so it's still hockey. But this is about the skills competition, and it's about, and in this case, in this area, we've got a chance to maybe go there just being down in Toronto, and the weather's not going to be horrible. There's going to be people out and around. Get this. You might want to find a place to have dinner in Toronto tomorrow night, and you might want to make it upscale because we're talking about trying to find National Hockey Leaguers, but the guys not playing in the skills competition, they don't even have to go. So they might be out for a nice dinner. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, earlier in this week, we were chatting about the, you know, another idea or another thing they used to do, which was, remember the challenge cup or whatever it was back when they used to play the, well, the 1974, 76, which was the mid, the uh, new year's game when, when the red army came and played against the Canadians and the Flyers. 76. 76. 
Now, the problem is we don't have a country that plays hockey that we hate like we did with the Soviet Union <laughs> once upon a time when they could be the enemy. But, you know, you almost look and go, okay, if we could just find some group that wanted, that really, really wanted to beat the NHLers, maybe that would be enough to motivate. Because those were, that was an amazing exhibition series for those who remember that one. It wasn't, it was that New Year's game, which was, uh, some say the greatest hockey game ever played, but there were a bunch of others that were great games against those teams too. You bet. But it was the secrecy almost. It was the unknown. Yes. And unfortunately, that's gone in our world. There is no unknown. They pulled the curtain back, and the Wizard of Oz is just some little guy sitting there. And that's how our world works. So, yeah, it was easier to make an us against them when it was an invisible enemy. Now we don't have that. So I think now we have to go to the fun. But you know what I like about this, Scott? There isn't going to be as much fun this time around because you're not going to see guys in capes or putting on sunglasses or doing silly things in the shootout. In fact, if you look at the skills competition, you've taken 12 guys. Now, one can't play in it, and that's Jack Hughes. He's injured, so Matt Barzell of the New York Islanders will play for him. But you've got accuracy shooting. You've got a passing challenge, one-timers, stick handling, hardest shot, and the ultimate fastest skater. That's it. There's no silly shootout stuff. Round two, you do get one-on-one. Goalies will show up to this. And this is this is to advance. And I think, what, is there a million dollars on the line for the winner in this? So nobody's going to be taking this unseriously. And then ultimately you can get into the final, which is the obstacle course. And all of them have sponsors, and all those sponsors have spent a lot of money and so this lines up to be pretty good. It's a lot. I, I really believe they've taken a template from the NBA, and they've really done a good job looking at what they do with the slam dunk contest and what they do with the three-point shooting, and now they've got other events in there. They've got an obstacle course in there. But I think they're going after something like that. And this should be the marquee event. Forget about the three-on-three. That's just kind of hanging around because they say, well, we still have to have a game of some kind. Just make it this, and then I don't know what else. You know, Just have the guys there, and for the city that hosts it, enjoy. Maybe they need two days of TV. Maybe that's in the contract. But overall, tomorrow night at 7 o'clock is the skills event. That's the event. Uh, 100% because, um, you know, the NBA, the one thing that it has somehow done, and I'm not sure how it's done this, if you watch the actual All-Star game, it's 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 like all the other ones pretty much. It's kind of embarrassing. The players, you know, if you're on defense, and I'm doing air quotes, you just let the guy go by you. No one's even attempting to play anything remote. It, it, it becomes unwatchable, but somehow the slam dunk contest has not been something where you're too cool for school. It's not a thing where if you try hard, you look like you're a dork. It's a good thing. You want to win the slam dunk and you want to win the three-point shooting contest. Those, it's cool to win those, which seems like the opposite of a lot of these things where, you know, a lot of these guys like, ah, I don't want to look like I'm trying. It's, that's not really cool. If the NHL could get the skills competition to be that, where it's actually a cool thing to be that guy, I think they'd be onto something. There's the goal. And with money on the line, 
People are going to be competing. And we saw that with the NBA in-season tournament. What did they do? They put money on the line. And as much as you say, look at how much money these guys make. Yeah, but an extra $100,000 in bragging rights and whatever else they want to put into this, that's going to be something that helps to make a difference for the players. And it's worked out really well for the NBA. I think it has a shot at working out well in the National Hockey League. And it's awfully nice to have it in Toronto to see it put in this way where they've kind of taken the template and they've looked at it and they've said, okay, we've got a couple rough edges. Maybe let's smooth those out. And eventually I really do believe the three on three will turn into something else, or I don't know, maybe three on three is fun enough, but division versus division. If it was, Hey Scott, if it was the Adams division up against the Patrick division and the Norris division (laughs) against the Smythe, I don't know. Would we have anything? I still don't believe we would. Guys are still just going to be out there and they're on a team. You have to divide it up somehow. Uh, Now they've got them in, obviously, celebrities. So they've changed that a little bit. So now they're celebrity teams. They've gone back to the draft. They've just had the draft. So does it matter now that you're the, the Justin Bieber team? And he, by the way, has all kinds of maple leaves yes. on him or or Team McDavid. I think they have Will Arnett as their celebrity captain. So they've added that fun into it. So I'm eager to see how that works because I think the divisions thing had had lost its luster. So changing this, yeah, I'm I'm interested enough in it. I don't that mind that. Maybe it won't be must watch, but it'll be if it's on and I'm there, I'm in. Were you a Wales conference guy or a Campbell conference? I forget. Don't worry. Um, no, but the the draft, the one thing about the draft that I also love too, and this may be, uh, I don't know, this may be just a bit of mean spiritedness. I'm not sure. I hope it's not that, but these players, every single one of these guys in their entire life has always been the first guy taken or the second guy taken. Always. They have always been the star. And I find great fascination in the Phil Kessels of the world. Who is the last or the last guys taken? Because they they have never experienced that in their life before. You're right. They never have. And that's, you know, that's pretty, it's pretty wild. Not many people can think like that, but they can. So pretty cool to be able to be in that position, isn't it? One more thing about this weekend, and I know it was just on because I, I I couldn't hear it, obviously. I'm in the studio here, but it was on the TV. They, as part of the thing, honored these, there are only seven of them, only five were there, these surviving members of the 1967 Leafs Stanley Cup team. And I got to tell you, Mike, you see these guys on TV and they are not young men. They are old men. And I wonder, is this a good idea for the Leafs in their all-star game is it a good idea to honor the 67 team or is that rubbing salt in your own wounds that the guys who are sitting at center ice barely able to get there are the last guys to even play in a final? That's a tough one. I really believe that if we all step back and look at it for the age that each of them happens to be, it's time. It's We need to have this team honored even though it does bring back the memories of how long ago it was the fact that it happened i mean if you could have brought back all the players from the last chicago cubs team to win before 2016 or the last boston red sox team to win before 2004 i think you'd look at it and say yeah this is pretty neat and the fact that they're able to do it 
I liked it. Yeah, I, I I would bring the guys from the Cubs and the Red Sox back after you won because then then the wound has healed. This is this I and again I I mean I I think it's great that they're out there, but it seems like you're setting yourself up with every other city you travel to now to remind them. Oh yeah, by the way, 1967. We know how to change that. There's one way to change that. Well, no, we know, well, yeah, we do know how, but we don't know how, or they do know <laughs> how, but they don't know how, or else they would have done something by now. Yes. It's, um, you know what? Maybe, maybe, okay. Fix the all-star game. Put one of each of the, one of those guys on each of the teams. Okay. All right. <laughs> now you're thinking, see, this is what they've done, Scott, going into this weekend. Bring back Dave they Keon. Left no holds barred, no stones unturned. That's that's an idea maybe that they were missing out on. Yeah, Dave Keon starting at center for the Justin Bieber team. Now There'd we're on to something stick. here. There, yeah. there would be a high <laughs> stick somewhere. Somewhere. He, he would get the stick up. He'd get the elbow. Dave Keon is the ultimate competitor. Four Stanley Cups for that guy. It's, uh, yeah. No, it, that well, I, I'm not actually suggesting it. We don't need a broken hip in the in the All Star game, but uh, that is Mike Stubbs. He is host of London Live on 980 CFPL and the London Knights play by play announcer. Mike, always love having you on. Thanks for doing this. We'll do it again. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Radley Show, weekday evenings from six to eight on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.